Welcome to Pocket Dilemmas, our podcast where we discuss political and economic questions which are facing the world today. I'm Jonathan Charles and Kerry Law is also here, as always, helping me to solve our dilemma today. And today we do have an unusual dilemma, as the EBRD's involvement in making Chernobyl's site safe draws to a close, we're asking, what are the lessons of Chernobyl? How do you decommission a plant like that and effectively manage the legacy of nuclear power? What are pocket dilemmas? Are algorithms biased? Will robots take away your job? Do you trust cryptocurrencies? How do we bridge the pay gap? What is the future of poverty? This is dilemmas at ebrd.com. I called the control room of Unit 4, and surprisingly, nobody peeped the phone, which was extremely unusual. So I called Unit 2, and I asked him, how about Unit 4? Was it shut down or not? He made a several seconds pause, and then he just said, look out of the window. terrifying moment for the world. You heard there the voice of Andrei Glukov, former engineer at the Chernobyl power plant. Uh, of course, he was there at that moment uh, when that explosion happened in 1986, spreading a nuclear cloud uh, and fallout uh, over large areas. That's a clip from our own documentary. You can find it on the EBRD YouTube channel, Chernobyl 30 Years On, it's called. If you're interested in Chernobyl, what really happened, what we did to secure the site, you'll find a lot of fascinating films there. Transforming Chernobyl is a long-term challenge and through our managed funds, the funds we manage on behalf of the international community, together working with uh, Ukraine, we've created the foundations to develop and implement a national strategy for the coming decades on, on how to resolve the issues left by Chernobyl. We are putting uh, what I like to describe as a big lid on Chernobyl. That's what we've done. Uh, that's not the technical term, of course. It is the new safe confinement. It was built to secure Chernobyl. It represents an extraordinary feat of engineering, a 36,000-ton structure, 100 108 meters high, 162 meters long, has a span of 257 meters. It provides a safe working environment uh, equipped with heavy-duty cranes for the future dismantling of the shelter and also the management of the waste. And, and how to describe it, I suppose it really is like a, a large enclosure which has gone round uh, the most uh, radioactive part of the plant. The recent success of uh, the HBO series, HBO television series, Chernobyl, has certainly intensified the debate around uh, nuclear power our energy, its safety, its future. Uh, anybody who has looked online will see huge amounts of searches through Google. It's, so, it's seen sur, uh, soaring numbers of searches for anything to do with Chernobyl, uh, decommissioning, nuclear explosion, reactor safety. And that's why we're talking about it here today. It's also a, a very hot topic today on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube because of the series. And in the States, the nuclear energy industry, which is kind of the unified voice of the nuclear energy uh, industry in the States, they came out with this fact sheet and because everyone in the States was kind of worried about, um, you know, if the nuclear power plant they have down the street was the same as Chernobyl, they wanted to assure Americans that actually, in fact, that the U.S. nuclear power plants are very different from the ones that we've seen in the Chernobyl series. Yes, not that they haven't had an issue in the past, of course, in an American nuclear power plant. Uh, you know, Kerry, I'm really looking forward to seeing the series. I haven't seen it yet, but they have a podcast as well, which is hosted by the HBO program's writer, Craig Mazing, and also Peter Segal of NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. 
Um, I found Craig's reasoning behind writing the series quite an interesting. What started you on this exploration? I knew that Chernobyl exploded, but I didn't know why. And it struck me as such an odd lapse because if you say to people, what happened to the Titanic? They'll tell you it sank. And if you say how, they'll tell you iceberg. Everybody knows it hit an iceberg. Nobody seemed to know offhand why and how Chernobyl blew up. So I just began to read, you know, one of those lovely evenings at home where you just start interneting yourself. <laughs> well, I can certainly remember very well that day, 1986, that April day uh, when the explosion happened. I was a relatively young reporter, Kerry, in the BBC newsroom on that day uh, when the first uh, words came through on news agency wires that something had happened, something was being detected. I'm pretty sure it was by a Swedish uh, detection, actually, that was, uh, picked up some sort of radioactive uh, activity. We knew something had happened. We didn't know what. We didn't know whether it was an explosion in a nuclear power plant, some sort of other nuclear event. Uh, but I can absolutely remember the moment that that wire copy dropped in the newsroom. It came through on people's computers. We were just starting to be computerized then in the newsroom. And I have never heard a room go so silent. Because I'm even though we didn't know what it was, we knew this was absolutely serious. I'm sure. I, I can imagine how haunted I would feel today if we got that kind of notification on our cell phones. And I mean, I was just a baby when it happened. So, you know, like Craig Mazin, I didn't really understand how or why it happened, but I always associated Chernobyl with a devastating nuclear disaster. You know, and so it's since I've always kind of associated nuclear energy with something that's a little bit dirty, I really found it interesting that actually in the mid-80s in the USSR, most um, most energy use was actually these really dirty fossil fuels. And so this nuclear energy was this oracle of clean energy for the country. So obviously since this disaster happened, it now has more of, of a dirty name. But I found it interesting just how much the conversation has changed in the it, last 30 years. Yes, and it was definitely a game-changing moment and a conversation-changing moment, which, which made people think again about nuclear power. I mean, obviously now, in terms of regarded as clean power, you know, we have all sorts of other things. We have renewables, such as uh, solar and wind, you know, proving themselves as viable solutions to meeting energy needs. Uh, and here at the EBRD, of course, we finance one of the biggest solar parks in the world, Bemban in Egypt. It's uh, one of its kind. It's absolutely huge. But there are some, I think, a lot of misconceptions, carry around this whole idea of nuclear power. I mean, do you know, for example, fewer people die in accidents related to nuclear malfunctions than fossil fuel-based ones such as in coal mines? And this is fascinating. And, and you know, even with Chernobyl, because the, the, the scale of devastation was just so big, I can imagine it's really hard to calculate the death toll, you know, years and years on, since a lot of these things take a long time um, to see. So it's fascinating that that's actually true. So I'm, I'm wondering, like, how true that actually yeah. is. I mean, I mean, I suspect as well that treatment of people who suffered from the impact of Chernobyl, you know, if one thinks not just in Ukraine, but uh, in Belarus, for example, uh, means that the number of fatalities are lower, even if they are living with the consequences uh, of nuclear uh, of the nuclear explosion. I mean, I, I remember here in the United Kingdom, actually, the cloud actually passed over the nuclear radioactivity cloud, passed twice over the UK because the wind direction changed. Uh, I remember as a reporter covering that, that the first wave came, uh, and obviously we're still a fair way in the United Kingdom from Chernobyl, uh, but certainly left an impact, for example, on upland areas. I remember hill farming, for example, in Wales was very badly affected for a very long time. Uh, and unfortunately for the UK, the winds, uh, which normally go in one direction, 
uh, they they change direction and, and the cloud passed back the other way. So you can see these these impacts really lasting uh, a very long time. But that impact is still very much debated. Exactly. Well, and I guess to your point earlier about the people that die in accidents related um, to something like a coal mine or something more fossil fuels related, you know, I guess the fossil fuel industry, if you start to um, relate some possible deaths in the future to things like climate change, mm. I guess then maybe you could get on the scale of something that happened, uh, like something like Chernobyl or Fukushima. Um, so I guess it's not really a far cry, um, you know, but between the two in terms I, of accidents. I think it's interesting, though, isn't it? So despite this further attention that there is now after Chernobyl on uh, the whole nuclear industry, you know, there's some interesting facts. According to the World Nuclear Association, there are nuclear power plants currently being built in every major continent in the world. In Murmansk, in Russia, the first floating nuclear power plant is under construction in the ocean. Uh, 54 power plants are currently under construction in 16 countries, and there are 454 active plants in the world, so it shows just how widespread nuclear energy is. For one of the first times in the history of the decommissioning profession, there's a risk of demand outstripping supply, an issue which is now being felt on a global scale, because obviously you have these power plants, eventually you've got to decommission them, you've got to deal with the waste as well. The number of projects coming to the fore is unmistakable due to mounting commercial pressures, aging assets, geographical market shifts, stricter environmental and legislative uh, compliance requirements, technical innovation, many other less tangible influences. So clearly our dilemma today, what are the lessons of Chernobyl? How to decommission a plant like that and effectively manage the legacy of nuclear power? Yeah, so it's a dilemma the world needs to uh, address. Let me remind you, you're listening to Pocket Dilemmas, our podcast where we discuss political and economic questions facing the world today. You can download, subscribe and rate us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify or anywhere else you can get the podcast from. We'd love to hear from you. This is Pocket Dilemmas, the podcast which explores the political and economic problems shaping our world. Review us on iTunes, email us at dilemmas at ebrd.com, follow us on Twitter at ebrd. Well, Kerry, we've got a great lineup of guests who will help us figure out the scope of this challenge. Uh, here in the studio with us is Simon Evans, our Associate Director in the Nuclear Energy Team at the EBRD, managing the Chernobyl Safety Projects, everything to do with the Shelter Fund or New Safe Confinement. Uh, Irina Velichko is on the line from Chernobyl. She's one of the lead engineers working on the site, making it safe. And Perhaps both of you, uh, you could just say, what is it about Chernobyl's story for you that's most important personally about the work there for you in one sentence, uh, just very quick. Top line thought from you, Simon, first of all. Uh, my top line thought from Chernobyl whenever I'm there is I'm reminded of the absolute imperative to do things safely. And it was that catastrophic failure to address that in on that fateful day in 1986 that has led to a legacy that has lasted 33 years and will last for many years further forward. And Irina, what about you? Well, for me, the word of Chernobyl has two different meanings inside. Uh, first of all, without any doubt, Chernobyl is a tragedy and a catastrophe to all the world. But on the other side, the project of a new safe confinement is such an excellent opportunity for the specialists and professionals to show what people's knowledge, experience and expertise can do if used in a proper way. So this, the story of Chernobyl is such a big part of our region, and so it's very personal to the EBRD. And, you know, it's affected a lot of people's lives, including actually people who work for the bank. So we feel really lucky to have found someone from Prepat who works for the bank. We have Yulia Filipova uh, from the Kiev office, and she told us her story. 
We came to Pripyat as part of the Komsomol building exercise in 1972. Pripyat and I are of the same age. I was also born in 1970. And this is why I always perceived this city as my brother. This was the best city in the world. I was so proud. The nuclear energy for us has always been a, a peaceful concept. So when Chernobyl nuclear disaster happened, it was such a shock to us all. We were all in denial, partly because from the very beginning our hopes were fed by the promises of coming back. A week to begin with, transformed into a month, a couple of months, a year. It took me about 10 years to accept what happened, only when 10 years later we came back to prepare as a large group of former residents who went to our old apartments and had a drink to honor the dead, when I touched everything and realized that Pripyat is not on another planet, but still 140 kilometers from Kiev, I had a closure and was freed from my pain. Pripyat, by the way, is right by Chernobyl. I remember going there in the 1990s as a reporter uh, about a decade after the accident as well. And and it's just staggering. It is You can just see how people immediately fled uh, very swiftly after the explosion because it is as though everything is just left as it was, uh, as though people just left everything in their houses, as though the streets, uh, they just left everything there as well. Uh, it, it, it is as though the, the place is there but without any people, and as though time just stood still. Uh, it's, it's a remarkable you know, reminder uh, of what happened on that day. Simon, you obviously have been there so many times as part of this project. Um, what, what thoughts does it leave you with uh, on this whole issue? Um, my main feeling when I'm at Chernobyl now is, is really one of, of pride, to be honest. Um, personal pride that I've had the opportunity to be involved in this real modern engineering wonder of the world. But actually, many people think of Chernobyl as a, as a sort of horrendous, a, a rather haunting place. I, I have a very different feeling when I'm there because you can see uh, the results of 45 different nations coming together, nations as diverse as Russia, China, United States, even small nations like Estonia, Lithuania, Iceland have all contributed as if they recognized that this was an a, a intolerable scar on the region that had to be addressed. And what the international community has achieved together at Chernobyl is unprecedented in scale, ambition and results. So I feel immensely proud to have played a very small part in that. And just for people who, who haven't seen any pictures of what has happened in the last few years at Chernobyl, I mean, I described it at the very beginning as like putting a lid on the plant. I mean, it's almost like you've put a bowl over bits of the plant that are uh, where, the, where the worst of the radioactivity was in danger of leaking out. Is that a fair, fair description? Give us an idea of really what it looks like and what it is. That's exactly it. It's a, a 36,000 ton steel structure, uh, the world's largest ever movable land-based structure that was slid into place uh, just over two years ago. And the way I tend to describe it is, is if you're French, it weighs three times the weight of the Eiffel Tower. If you're British, it encloses St. Paul's Cathedral. If you're American, it would enclose the Statue of Liberty. It really is an absolutely enormous structure designed for 100 years to be able to address the legacy of Chernobyl in a safe and secure way. And that's the first time that has happened since the time of the accident. And this was necessary because radio, the, the roof that was in place uh, since 1986 was beginning to allow leakages. Is that, is that right? It wasn't, it wasn't going to last much longer? Exactly. What, what was built after the accident, which was 
known as the the old sarcophagus or in or the object shelter was built in unbelievably heroic circumstances mm. um, however it was never built to last it was slowly falling apart it had huge holes in it part of it had already collapsed about four years ago and sooner or later it was going to collapse and we had to be able to address it for the long term to be able to slowly tart, start taking apart the lethal inventory within the old destroyed Unit 4. And we'll come to decommissioning in a minute. Amazing. It sounds like a, a real feat of human ingenuity. So, Irina, so you're incredibly inspirational. From my understanding, you're an engineer on the largest construction project in the world. You're working on this big mega structure that makes Chernobyl safe. How did you get involved with Chernobyl? Well, my father used to work at Chernobyl nuclear power plant, and since my childhood, I remember how he was coming back from work and telling us about Chernobyl. And I always wondered what that mysterious Chernobyl creature was. I was dreaming actually about seeing it myself. Uh, though I never expected to work over here and moreover to become a part of such unique and tremendous project. And after I graduated from university in Kyiv, all of a sudden I packed my stuff and returned to Slobodic, having no job opportunities and no idea what I was going to do over there. And I was not looking for a job at Chernobyl nuclear power plant. It was not my goal to get over here, but it found me itself, so probably it was a destiny. That's amazing. So it's almost like a, a, a sense of duty, almost. Um, that, and, and I guess a little bit of a, um, I guess a little bit of a, a rounding the circle that you're there when you know when you when you heard all these stories of your father being there. Have, have you seen the series by chance on HBO? Uh, yes, I actually have and loved them very much. Well, working in Chernobyl for sure, I realized that not everything that was shown in the series reflects the facts correctly. Uh, but I should tell the, the truth that uh, the series give very full picture of the environment and the atmosphere that, uh, atmosphere that existed that time over here. So I have a, a very random question for you, but it has been really gnawing at me since, since we knew this series or this podcast was, um, was coming. What do you wear to work? Because I imagine it's something like a hazmat suit. Um, what, what do you wear? Is there radioactive material where you work? Are there multiple wardrobe changes? Can you go, can you go through the process for me? Uh, yes, yeah, sure. Well, um, first of all, I should mention that uh, we are coming from Slavutic. This is a town nearby uh, to Chernobyl uh, power plant. And the first thing uh, when you, the first place where you get uh, coming from Slavutic is the change facility, which is called Semihodi. Uh, so on the train coming on the way to Chernobyl nuclear power plant, we wear our regular clothes. But coming to change facility Semihodi, we change our uh, personal clothes to our work clothes. And this work clothes we wear on site. But moreover, uh, when we need to go to the construction site itself, we have a change room in the uh, project management union building. And to go to construction site, uh, we change the uniform once again, which is the uh, work suit, the hard hat, safety boots, safety glasses, earplugs, and something, something else if it's needed. 
Wow, well, that's a, that's a lot more thought that has to go into your wardrobe than, than my own. Absolutely. <laughs> that's quite staggering, listening to all that arena. Absolutely staggering. Um, reminder, what are we talking about here today? What is our dilemma? Well, what are the lessons of Chernobyl? How do you decommission a plant like that and effectively manage the legacy of nuclear power? Simon Evans, nuclear reactors are incredibly complex creatures in any country. It's not just Chernobyl. Decommissioning isn't simply about reversing construction is it? So how, how did you approach a project of this magnitude? Um, well, at Chernobyl, fortunately, it was a, a very unique project. Um, we had to approach it on a very much a step-by-step -step basis, recognizing that there was immense uncertainty at every stage. So uh, each stage informed the next stage of development. So for example, we had to do site clearance. Initially, Site clearance, we unearthed huge amounts of old equipment that had to be categorized and made safe. We then got a clean area for that workers. That could have been radioactive. It was radioactive, yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. In order to get one and a half thousand workers onto site, we then had to have design, we then had to have the very special engineering of the cladding and the crane systems. And then a lot more detail than I can possibly go into now. But even when we got to the final stages of uh, sliding, we then hit another area because essentially when you're building something in a a moderately clean place new, it's relatively speaking, and I stress the relatively simple. As soon as we started touching the old facilities, it got very, very complicated. And the worst area we had to deal with was the final element of sealing the arch to some of the old facilities, where we encountered dose rates, which we hadn't encountered in any other stage of the project, where we had workers able to work there for a maximum, of, say, of five minutes a day at well, our worst. Okay, and what, what would have happened if we hadn't done this work, by the way? What, what do you think, you know, if sort of, we can't put a lid on it, what, what would we be facing as a world? Um, over long time, the old sarcophagus was decaying. It was never built to last, and sooner or later, it was going to fall apart. Um, at the very least, falling apart of the old shelter would have massively contaminated the immediate area, making it in another immensely challenging decommissioning area. At its worst, it would cloud up another, that cloud of radioactive dust would have contaminated the near region as well. Uh, but the essential point is that it had to be able to deliver some sort of facility that was able to start the long-term decommission, to give them the confidence that they can address the legacy over many decades. And it is a, a decade and maybe possibly up to 100 years long. And they simply didn't have that level of confidence. So that was really what the international community has provided there. So, you know, decommissioning clearly is a really difficult task. And I can imagine that the technologies found on site grow old very quickly. How do you implement new technologies and how do you go about kind of testing those technologies on site? Because I can imagine, as you said, you know, the, the newest of the new is almost needed in order to address some of these challenges. Well, Perhaps not, actually. Um, in terms of the technology, when you're dealing with something that has to last for many, many years in the future, the first, the most important thing is it has to be very reliable. So, for example, the essential piece of kit that we have on the new safe confinement is the crane system, which has to be able to be remotely handled and operate over many, many decades. So, in terms of the technology associated with the crane system, whilst it was very important and very valuable and quite new, some of the most challenging aspects of the crane system were how are we going to keep it working? How are we going to maintain it? So in the confinement, we've had to specially engineer parts of the confinement which are low-dose areas, shielded with lead, where you can maintain it. All that had to be engineered in. So it was the long-term aspect of, of the confinement which was the really challenging aspect, rather than the actual physical materials in the first place. 
quite an amazing feat. Actually, we should say that nothing like this has ever been tried before, had it? No, nothing like this ever. <laughs> Makes it even more staggering. Um, Irina in Chernobyl, what was the most challenging part of, of your work on the site? Well, talking from the safety point of view, one of the challenges is radiological background and all works have to be arranged taking into account this um, radiation factor and safety of the people working over here is still the priority. Um, the other challenge is that the project is unique and many methods and technologies had to be developed especially for this project. And I would say there is one more challenge which is also very important, and this is people. Because human nature not always tells us to stay safe and do everything safely and correctly. People are prone to looking for shortcuts, hoping that everything will be good. Uh, but seeing the current status of the project, I can say that all of us were able to address the, those challenges properly. You must be incredibly proud to be doing this work. Absolutely. It's absolutely amazing project and I still sometimes don't believe I got a lucky chance to become a part of it. I love, I love that Chernobyl is getting so much press right now because it, it really is such an incredible story that I think a lot of people know, need to know uh, just more about not only what happened so we can learn from it, but also the incredible people there today who are still maintaining it. I think it's also, you know, it's very good to remember recent history and otherwise history gets lost. And I think from that point of view, it's very good. Let me remind you, you know, you're listening to Pocket Dilemmas. It's uh, the EBRD podcast where we discuss political and economic questions facing the world today. You can download, subscribe, rate us on iTunes. We love that. SoundCloud, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcast from, please do that. And our dilemma today, what are the lessons of Chernobyl and how do you decommission a plant like that and, and manage the legacy uh, of what happened at Chernobyl. Simon Evans, what about spent nuclear fuel? You know, that, that was a major part of our work in making the, the site safe, wasn't it? And, and actually, it's not the only former nuclear plant where, where fuel needs to be made safe. You know, it's a big issue for the nuclear energy industry, decommissioning. That's part of decommissioning, isn't it? Absolutely. The management of the spent nuclear fuel at Chernobyl is one of the immense challenges. Um, Remember at Chernobyl that there were four operational reactors at the time of the accident. One exploded, the three others were still operating, and one of our major projects that we have is the uh, safety and security of the fuel from those other three reactors. And we're busy building the world's largest dry spent fuel store at Chernobyl to address the challenges of security from the spent fuel from the accident. And in many terms, in terms of radiological risk, uh, the old spent fuel store at Chernobyl, which is, was right next to the old Unit 4 reactor, a water store, uh, actually represented some of the most challenging uh, radiological risks we had on site. And this was fuel from the reactors that didn't explode. And obviously decommissioning you know, is an area which is of great interest as, as many reactors around the world age. Do you think it's something that we can contribute uh, more, more to in, in how decommissioning takes place? Because obviously in the countries where we operate, we do have quite a lot of ageing uh, nuclear stations. Absolutely. I think nuclear decommissioning is an immense challenge across the globe. Uh, in many countries, such as the UK, there is a fairly well-developed and mature approach to nuclear decommissioning with the establishment of organisations such as the Nuclear Decommissioning Agency. But in many of the countries, uh, particularly in our regions of operation, Central Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union, um, a lot of the legacies that arose are legacies that were the time of the Cold War, where there was no thought at all about how to go about decommissioning 
um, them safely and securely. Uh, and, and, and you can see Chernobyl is perhaps the most uh, well-known example of uh, decommissioning challenges in the region, and it will be for many, many years to come. But, for example, in, if you look in northwest Russia, mm. there are vast areas of uh, decommissioning challenges arising from spent submarine fuel. And, for example, we've, we're aware in Kazakhstan, for example, there is a reactor right on the border of the Caspian Sea where the approaches have been made, what on earth do we do with decommissioning this reactor, which is a plutonium breeder reactor built at the time of the uh, Cold War with no thought about going into the design, about how you might decommission this. So these challenges are real, and at some stage they have to be addressed. And, you know, I was really surprised to learn that even in the U.S. there's no long-term storage facility for storing high levels of nuclear waste. So it seems like no country is, is left out of the conversation of what are we going to do, you know, in terms of decommissioning and storing some of this stuff that is incredibly dangerous. Um, Irina, so, so for you, given that Chernobyl is so personal, What's your dream in terms of how you'd like to see Chernobyl, uh, you know, the outcome of Chernobyl, or, or what, what do you see Chernobyl uh, like in your future? Well, for sure, I would love to see the arch fully operational and having reached its main goal on dismantlement of the destroyed unit number four, which will help all the um, international community to make one step further to making Chernobyl a safe and environmentally friendly place. Um, so I hear that actually Chernobyl is a big tourist destination, and so there are hotels that people can stay in, and it's really a place people can go to learn. Is that also kind of part of the desired outcome of your work? Is that future gener generations can continue to learn and kind of and kind of see what see what happened here? Well, you are absolutely correct. We have plenty of tourists coming over here and especially after the HBO series have been released we have even more and I think this is really good uh, when people are coming over here to see it themselves uh, to find out uh, about the story uh, of the Chernobyl of the project I think this is really good when you can sort of touch it yourself this is very nice. Simon, what do you think about that? Because obviously you go there in a professional capacity. It, it, it might seem to some people a bit macabre to go there in a tourist capacity. I, I welcome the fact that people are aware of what's happening at Chernobyl and uh, appreciating what happened to the accident and maybe taking uh, a time to reflect on the contributions that the international community have made at the site. I have to say I feel a little bit uncomfortable about the unregulated aspects of certain it. When we are at site, we're incredibly careful about visitors at site with hard hats, vest, boots, dosimeters, respirators. It's absolutely number one priority. And yet, I don't quite think they've got to that level of safety when they're taking busloads of tourists around Pripyat, which has got every level of industrial danger, crumbling buildings, glass, uh, all over the place. So I think at some stage, they're possibly going to have to do a little bit more Regulation, regulation on this. What people won't do for a selfie nowadays. I know, I know I mean. yes. Well, I, yes, there were some interesting pictures I was seeing in the newspapers today, but I think we'll talk about that right here. Now, Simon, tell me about something called the elephant's foot. Uh, what is it? <laughs> the elephant's foot is, um, it it's, has an almost sort of mythological status, like a Medusa-like status of, it, it's uh, the 
most radiologically lethal part of the site. It's uh, a mass of fuel mixed with graphite, mixed with some of the um, stuff that was poured on top of the reactor after the fire that melted into a lava-like mass and sits in the bottom of uh, the Unit 4 reactor. It's incredibly lethal, it's incredibly dangerous, and uh, we have never ever gone near it, and we have encouraged everyone else never to go near it. But at some stage, somebody is going to have to work out what you're going to do with this, and this becomes quite a challenge for them. So, Irina, what's the most amazing discovery that you've made on site? Well, the most amazing on site for me personally um, are people. And I'm talking about those people who are not just coming to work to have their job done and go home, but about those who truly believe in the future of this project and its sacramental purpose. And thanks to such people, uh, we are where we are currently, I think. Interesting. So last question to both of you as we wrap up. So, you know, if you look at the stats, something maybe not to the scale of Chernobyl, but some nuclear disasters kind of happened every decade. Do you think that something like Chernobyl actually can happen again? Simon, let's start with you. Uh, you ask a very simple question. And the answer is very complicated. Um, maybe I could reframe it technically in terms of could what happened in that fateful night in 1986 in the reactor happen again I would say categorically not the lessons have been learned from a technological status comparing a Chernobyl reactor to a modern reactor to the management to the expertise the regulations the safety culture to it is is incomparable it's like comparing an old East German Trabant to an Audi so I I, I, I would say there's not that many uh, much comparison you can say from the safety of what happened in 1986 in trouble to modern day nuclear reactor safety. Uh, if you say is nuclear power safe that's again a very difficult question. I would again rephrase it to say well do we understand the risks of nuclear? Can we mitigate them? Can we manage them? Can we deal with the technological, the regulatory, the safety aspects in such a way that we can have confidence that nuclear will have a part to play as part of a broader energy mix? Now, that's a, a question that personally I believe the answer is yes, uh, but it remains really up for sovereign governments to take those decisions. But when you look at some of the advantages that nuclear has in terms of uh, low CO2 emissions and carbon friendly and a very, very secure long-term baseload, I think nuclear should be part of a long-term baseload mix for future generations and we can manage that successfully. Great. Irina? Well, I would agree with Simon, this is a rather complicated question taken into account that large number of uh, countries around the world are using nuclear energy and people are keen on forgetting about the mistakes they have made in the past and uh, normally this is the point when something bad might happen so I would say never say never we don't know what might happen and what might not happen but I really hope that uh, we will remember mistakes we have done in the past and nothing like Chernobyl will happen ever again So Jonathan, what about our dilemma today? How do you decommission a plant like Chernobyl um, and effectively manage the legacy of, of nuclear power? I'm really a great believer, Kerry, in history. I think it's really important to remember the past in order to help you deal with the present and indeed plan the future. Uh, and, and what is the history lesson of Chernobyl? Well, I think it's very important, and, and in a way, you know, the HBO series is quite important in this as well, that people constantly are reminded uh, of what happened so they do not become complacent 
uh, and do plan ahead because it seems to me that in answering this dilemma it is about planning it is about careful management of nuclear power and the aftermath of uh, the afterlife of nuclear stations when they're taken out. And, and I, I think the other lesson I draw from all of this as well is that when the, the worst happens, and sometimes, as we've seen you know, with Chernobyl, the worst can happen, uh, you can do something about it. I think the lesson of the new safe confinement, uh, which has been put over Chernobyl, is that at great expense and with a huge amount of effort, you can contain a nuclear disaster. I think that's an excellent point. And, you know, I agree with Simon. I I don't see a future without nuclear energy in the mix somewhere. It just makes me very nervous. But it's really good that series like this are coming out because it's important to just keep fresh in the mind something, you know, like, like this happened. It could happen in the future, maybe not to this extent, but something else might happen which might be different and worse. You know, who knows? But, you know, it leaves me with more questions. We might have been in 1986 as a result of all this. Um, that's all we've got time for. Many thanks for listening to us today. Big thank you to our guests as well, to Irina and Simon. We hope to see you again soon as listeners. Uh, reminder, please subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes or anywhere else you can get the podcast from. We'd love that. Get in touch with us uh, at uh, dilemmas at ebrd.com and suggest your dilemmas as well. We'd love ideas uh, for the future. We're now off for a summer break. We'll be back in the autumn. I hope you have a break too. This podcast was brought to you by the EBRD. We'll be back soon with a new episode. In the meantime, send us your feedback, suggestions and ideas on dilemmas at ebrd.com. And remember, reviewing and rating us helps others to find us. Until next time.